Today's show brought to you by our friends at the Breeders' Cup. The action continues across the country this weekend with 14 Breeders' Cup win and you're in races. Keeneland hosts nine of them from Friday the 7th through Sunday the 9th. Two more at Aqueduct on Saturday and Sunday. And finally, three more from Santa Anita on Saturday. Going to be coverage all weekend on FanDuel TV with special coverage on Saturday on CNBC and Fox Sports 2. You're not going to want to miss it. For more information, go to breederscup.com. Welcome to the In the Money Players Podcast. This is our show for Monday, October 3rd. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you in the Brooklyn Bunker once again. We have a very special show for you today. We actually have so much stuff, I think I'm going to divide it over two shows. (laughs) So the one that this will lead off is going to have two guests, and we're going to start off speaking to one of the favorite guests that we've ever had, another one of those people who whenever he's on, they say you should have him on more. A little bit later in the show, we're going to get to a guest that people often say, why don't you have him on more? Because he hasn't been on enough. That's Richard Migliori. We'll get to him in a minute. But we're going to kick things off with a professional horse player who's also a uh, successful handicapping author from Lexington, Kentucky. He's Mike Maloney. Mike, how are things? Everything's good, Pete. Uh, And... uh you know, kind of honored to be on the same show as Mig. I watch him on the Fox show on a regular basis and uh, love uh, what he and JK and the rest of the crew do. Indeed. We're going to have JK on plenty during this month of October as well in this big run-up to the Breeders' Cup, Keeneland Fall Meet. We might bother you to talk a little bit about that, Mike, on a different show. But you're here today to help me offer an early preview of the Breeders' Cup Classic. We're going to look back at the two big prep races for the Classic that happened this weekend. But I feel like any discussion of the Classic should start with Flightline and the the shadow that he casts over this year's Breeders' Cup Classic. As somebody who's been around the game for a minute, how impressed are you by this horse? Well, very impressed. I I don't know how you could not be. Um, Horse hasn't done anything wrong. He's in He's in good hands. He seems to move forward. Uh, I kind of got the feel from Sadler that he thought, as strange as it sounded, as scary as it sounded, that Sadler thought that Flightline would get better with more distance, that he would be better around two turns, and it looked that way off the Pacific Classic. So, uh, you know, the, the sky's the limit, and it's, it's hard to knock the horse. Did you take a look at the last figure that he earned for the Pacific Classic? Do you have an opinion on where it should be? There's been a lot of chatter about it. I feel like the 126 buyer speed figure is looking real good after what we saw this past weekend, but I know there are those who believe it should be higher. Yeah, it seemed the way the horses ran back in the awesome again that that the the buyer felt right. You know, it felt, uh, you know, it didn't feel like it should be a lot higher. And then the next question is, does it really matter when you're talking about a horse that earns figures this high and they're, they're so much better than what the other equines today are are putting up? Yeah, anyway. yeah. Well, I, I almost said to you, you know, why does it matter? But I thought I'd save my smirkiness for later. <laughs> we'll get to that. We always look forward. We always look forward to that as well. When you think ahead to this year's Breeders' Cup Classic, and I'm not asking to make a pick here exactly, but 
I'm going to do a video for it pretty soon. And the more I look at the race and, you know, we'll talk more about these races from the past weekend. I'm, I'm getting tempted to take the basically close to four to five that's available on Flightline internationally. I'm starting to think this race might be a foregone conclusion. It, how, do you see it that way? I mean, do you think anybody else has a chance this year? Well, he, he you know, it's always a horse race. I, it, it, with a, with a lightly raced horse like like Flightline, um, in my mind, it's basically he has to beat himself. You know, he has to to not show up, and and or, you know, you're you're always looking for a little chink in the armor. But so far, I don't see it. You know, we'll watch his training going into the classic as it gets closer. But uh, I, you know, he's a legit favorite, and I don't have any interest in. In, in trying to beat him, uh, I'm a lot more interested in, and I, you know, I haven't like studied the PPs. I'm a, I'm a wait till they draw the entries and then look at the race kind of guy. But just thinking about it in my mind, the, the, the horse that that's going to interest me, I mean, we're going to talk about a couple of these, the, the Woodward and the awesome again today, and I'll have opinions on horses in there that are going to be mostly negative, but, um, uh, the, the one horse that that's out there that, that I have an interest in is, is epicenter. I, you know, I think if he's so versatile, I think if they go to the, uh, if Rosario will, will do the, the rating job of, of keeping him from engaging too early that, that, you know, he's the horse I'm interested in that, you know, it, it, uh, he's got enough finish when he's when he's ridden off the pace like that 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 uh, I think he could be a, a factor and he could you know definitely uh, be the horse that might fill out the exactus. I'm a huge Epicenter fan, and until very recently, was thinking he was somewhat close to nailed on for being champion three year old, and I still think he's a big favorite. But the way Tabor ran the last day and looking at his PP for the year. If he somehow were able to make an impact, well, more than make an impact, he might have to dar- to win the the Breeders' Cup Classic to unseat Epicenter for champion three year old. But it doesn't seem as crazy of a proposition that he might do that now that he put up that big number in the Pennsylvania Derby. Do you see Taba as a horse that that could potentially have an impact in in the Classic? How impressed are you with him? He's an interesting horse. He's moving forward, and he's a, obviously a talented horse. Um, I thought he got kind of a soft trip in the in the parks race, and uh, you know there was a lot of bias on that racetrack, and and he was in the right spot. Uh, so I think that performance looks a little better on paper than it actually was, but he, he's still an improving horse. That you know that that that's that's a factor you he's one of the contenders but i think that uh you know he may be a little dressed up off the parks race i think that sounds fair you talked about the bias on that turf course how did you how did you characterize that bias well i thought the dirt was was you know you were speed was good but it was it was mainly inside speed um and and i you know he he laid close enough and and saved a lot of ground so you know i think it was a it was a favorable trip considering the way the track was playing that day. Let's talk about Belmont on Saturday. The big race was the Woodward. It looked like a a formality 
on the show on Friday. I don't know if you heard, but uh, JK made the case that he felt that life is good could have started behind the starting date and still won <laughs> after the race. I doubt he feels the same way. He was given quite a race by law professor. Um, the figure came back a little light only at 97. What did you make of life is good's performance in the Woodward? You know, it concerns me a little, Pete. Um, you, you know, he won. And, uh, so, you know, you, you, you hate to pick that apart too much. And I guess, you know, I went back and tried to look at his, at, at his works leading into that. You, you, you know, there's always the thought that, that Pletcher, you know, didn't squeeze him in, you know, much into that race and, and, you know, was just using it to moving forward, uh, into the classic. And, and I think there's probably a lot of truth to that, but I'm always looking for signs of, of a, even a slight decline in horses and uh, especially heavily bet horses. And, uh, I, you know, I see a little decline there and, you know, maybe it was the, you know, condition of the track and you know, maybe it was, uh, just that he wasn't uh, super cranked for the, for that race for the Woodward, but, um, uh, it, it bothers me. I, I'm, I'm going to take a negative view as of now. I'm going to take a negative view of uh, life is good into the classic and but probably to the point like where I feel now, I would just I would just leave him out and, you know, and, and hope I, you know, hope I can get him out of the number. If you were advising, this is a bit, bit of an off the wall question, but if you were advising uh, the the folks over there at uh, at Windstar as to what to do with him. Do you think he'd actually be better off in trying a softer test like the Dirt Mile, or do you think this really is the only spot for him, and they they just got to see what happens? Well, the folks at Windstar, Elliot Walden, and the crew know you know they know a lot more about the horse than I do, probably. So, uh, um, I, you know, I the old saying you you never skip a race that you never skip the race that you want to run in because of one horse. I think that's a good rule. Uh, I think that's a, a good way to go. So I don't blame them at all for running in the classic. And if the horse is doing well and I was making the decision, most likely I would run him in the classic also. I, you know, if I thought he was on decline, a horse of his caliber, I wouldn't run him at all anywhere. Right. So uh, if I thought he was fit to run and, 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 and Todd was saying, you know, the horse is good, then, then I would run him in the classic. But as a handicapper, sometimes we, you know, it's all about probability. So a horse that's going to be, you know, one of the, of, of the bad horses in the race. Um, if I'm right about the decline, you know, I can wipe out the takeout or maybe more than wipe out the takeout with, with that one idea of, of leaving him out. And, you know, and I, I can also structure a bet where, I, you know, maybe I play a third of my money with him getting a piece, you know, with my uh, with my best ideas with him in some in some exotics. So, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to approach that. But overall, I think I think I'll take the negative uh, slant on life is good. I think that's an interesting point you bring up about wagering structure in verticals where you constructed by scenario. We talk a lot on the shows about horizontal bets and okay. Yeah. And maybe I'll run 10% of my money through this alternative scenario or 20%. But 
but it sounds like you do this exact same thing when you're bit just betting within a, a specific race as well. And that's probably not an idea we've talked about enough on these airwaves. Yeah, I've always done that. Or I've done that for years and years. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, it's a, there's so many decisions uh, when you are, you're really trying to structure your bets. There's so many hard decisions that you have to make. So, uh, the, you know, I, I most likely will not, uh, I'll most likely just take the total fade approach on him, but there, uh, there are absolutely lots of structural things you can do in vertical exotics that are, you know, they're, they're exactly like the, the horizontal hedges that you use by using a horse, you know, in a, uh, for a certain amount of your money or trying to, trying to avoid, uh, being exactly right about having your perfect horse win and your perfect horse run third. And the horse you had the, the, the negative opinion about split you and you get nothing. That's, it doesn't take much money to avoid that particular outcome. We've talked about that idea before. I think it's even in 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 the book um, about you treat treating the overbet favorite like another horse as opposed to going for the full on fade or using them extra because of the shorter price they're going to be. It's sort of a way of just sitting in the middle. Yeah, you know there are times when I'll, you know, when you when the complete fade is the right thing, but you know I'm not trying to make a grandstand play. I'm not trying to impress. I'm probably not sitting with anyone. But if I were, I wouldn't be trying to impress the guy that is sitting next to me by making the bold statement. Oh, you know, life is good. Gets zero. You know, he's. I'm not using him for a, for a dime. Maybe I won't, but. Uh, I, I try to avoid letting the ego, you know, slip into it and just look at it strictly from a, a probability standpoint. And you're not too concerned necessarily about expected value of of that particular combination or, you know, that's a debate that's been raging lately about what you're supposed to do with these horses. Curious. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's a, a player style debate. And the, the, the answer to that, the winner of that debate is, is, is dependent. There are multiple winners of that debate in my eyes there. It, it's uh, what determines which side of that debate is the winner for you is what your overall approach is to money management and what your betting style is. I think that makes sense. Like so many questions when it comes to all this stuff, the answer is it depends. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Makes people crazy sometimes when you have to give them that though. Let's talk about, the California prep race, the awesome again. I think this is a really interesting result. Stretch out speed into funded uh, winning the race. Part of the reason why I constructed the scenario that I put in my at the races.com column that had him winning in country grammar, finishing second was that it did feel like the racetrack was likely to be tilted to speed. How much do you think the racetrack helped the funded get home? I didn't think it was severely biased uh, that day at Santa Anita, Pete. I, you know, um, there was a, an earlier route race, I believe, where it was a short price horse, but a short price horse closed and, and closed wide, as I recall. So uh, I, I didn't 
in my bias notes, I didn't have a, uh, I didn't have a bias for that day. Um, as far as uh, my opinion of that race, I, I, I thought it was a, a weak addition and uh, I thought the funded, the, the pace seemed uh, legit enough, but I, I thought he got a, a good setup and uh, a setup that if, if they put him in the classic, if Baffert went that direction, I don't, you know, you have very little chance of getting that set up in the classic. So, um, I, I, you know, I would have no interest in him at all in the, in the classic, uh, in the mile, it would be a different story. I would, I would have to take a look, but, uh, he, he didn't impress me in that race. It feels like he might be the rabbit for country grammar, for Taba, for epicenter, for everybody who isn't flight line. Now I'm not convinced that flight line, in my betting, I, I like the idea that people might get talking about that and it might help you preserve a little bit of value with Flightline, who I think you could put whatever rabbit you want in there short of a proper grade one sprinter. I think he's probably just going to break them in half or be good enough to settle and, and just treat them like they're not in the race. But I do think it might affect some other people's tactics. You know, Life is good being one in particular who it feels like they might have had some inkling that they would have to do some dirty work with a horse like Defunded in there. It just feels to me like they might be able to be a little bit more passive with him. I feel like it could change the race a little bit, having this clear pace presence should Defunded continue to point on to the to the classic. Do you, do you think other connections might see it that way? I, you know, I don't know about the other connections, but as as for me, if if defunded goes in the classic, I think that's the death knell for life is good. I, you know, I I think life is good is just a a really quick breaking athletic horse that uh, that you're going to compromise him if you don't just let him run and 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 go ahead and get his position early. So. Uh, that, you know, doesn't mean he would have to be, you know, have his head in front, but, uh, he and defunded would, uh, they would do some damage to each other. I think, uh, early in the, early in that race, I, I think it would be almost unavoidable for, for those two to, to hook up at, at, you know, at some point in the first three quarters of that race and, and take something out of each other. What of country grammar? This is a horse that at times has looked like he needs every inch of the mile and a quarter to show his best form. Only came back with a 97 buyer speed figure. Defunded got a 99 in victory the other day. Um, do you like his ability potentially to get a piece coming from off the pace in the classic? You know, country grammar is a funny horse to me because when in the first few races of his career, he was a bad luck horse. If you remember. Yep. Uh, he was everyone's trip horse. Uh, all the wise guys were, you know, had him uh, on their list and uh, on their watch list. And uh, he went from that to, you know, making a ton of money and getting a lot of good setups, in my opinion. Uh, now, as he's, uh, you know, as, as he's had a bunch of races and, and he's kind of a fully formed horse, just doesn't seem that fast right now. So, um, I, you know, the only interest I can have in him is on the bottom, you know, kind of dinking into 
to the bottom of the tri or a super in the classic. Um, I, I do like his consistency and I like his versatility. Um, he can, you know, he can adapt to about any kind of pace and, and he shows up, uh, almost every time. So love that about him. And that makes him, uh, you know, we talked about uh, a dinker in, in betting with an edge. And this is a, this may be the, the horse that I'm, I'm calling a dinker in a specific race that's made the most amount of money in history. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, in the classic, this year's classic, that's kind of what, you know, that's how I would classify yeah, the eleven million, you know, it it uh, it it is not necessarily reflective of what his place is going to be in the in the market. That's for that's for sure. But I do feel that having a horse that you know is gonna run, well, assuming defunded goes, he would be one I think could could benefit and be ridden probably colder. And you, like you said, he's shown that versatility. I do think his chance of getting third or fourth goes goes way up with the funded in the race. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah. Um, although the, the, the flip side of that coin is uh, uh, country grammar. You know, if I'm looking at him as, as a dinker type, I normally like to, to inject a lot more value into the situation with a dinker uh, and country grammar, just from the con- connections and the success he's had, in his career, I, I can't see him being any kind of a big crazy price. Anything else out of the awesome again? You might be looking forward to betting going forward in the in the right spot. Anything you noticed of interest? It seems like a lot of horses going the wrong way and slow down Andy, obviously stepping up big. But I, I wasn't seeing anything particularly interesting about the rest of the field. Yeah, me either. I, you know, in, in the in the race, I I tried to get Express Train to run. And, uh, with, you know, with the funded and, and, uh, you know, he didn't show up at all and, and got a reasonably good trip. So yeah, it just looked like a weak overall race, uh, to me. And I, you know, the, that figure feels a little low, but even if you, it bounce it up a, a, a couple of points, it, it's not going to matter. You know, it just doesn't seem like, uh, uh, like there's anything in there that, that would, that would really factor in the in the uh, top two spots in the class. I wasn't planning on asking you about the Lucas Classic, but we've, since we're talking about the, the the Breeders' Cup Classic, and you would think that Rich Strike and the ability he showed going a mile and a quarter in the Derby, you'd think that would be his next port of call, and you know perhaps for Hot Rod Charlie as well. We're going to dive down into the particulars of the incident in the next segment with Mig, but I'm just curious going forward, how you evaluate the chances of hot rod, Charlie and, and rich strike in a, in a big dance, like the breeders cup classic. Uh, well, hot rod, Charlie, um, uh, you know, I love that horse. He is just, you know, he's a consistent hard knock and he's my kind of horse. Um, and I, I was impressed with the, with the Lucas, uh, for him, I, I thought he, you know, he took a lot of pressure and, um, you know, he responded in the lane and I, I was just looking at his ears there late in the race. He's just flipping those ears like, Hey, I got more, you know, you want, you, you, you want some more. I got some more. Uh, he, he's kind of an interesting horse. 
it, the pace scenario, though, is going to be, I mean, we'll see how how Keeneland is, is playing, like leading into that is going to be a big factor in all these decisions, especially when you start splitting hairs and, and trying to decide who to use in the underneath slots. Um, because, you know, uh, Charlie's going to be close. Uh, you know, he doesn't need the lead, but but he needs to be in the game. And I think he's so competitive, uh, you know, horse to horse wise. He, you know, he likes he likes a fight, uh, a mig line. Uh, so he, you know, he he's interesting. He's the faster the pace gets. Uh, although he's handled he's handled really that situation before, but the, the you know in theory the faster the pace gets, um, the you know the more I would downgrade Hot Rod Charlie's chances. But he's kind of a unique horse, and that he's a fighter, so uh, he he's a horse I will um, whatever the numbers and whatever the uh, how I design the race in the end says. I'll probably use Hot Rod just a little extra just because I love the fight in the horse. Um, and and uh, Rich Strike, um, you know, he's going to get a nice setup. He, he's the, the classic is it, the, way it, the way it sets up as of today, it, it is going to be a, a perfect uh, uh, situation for a deep closer. Especially a deep closer that can run, you know, low hundreds, and and is a three year old, and it appears to be moving forward. Uh, you know, if if Sonny Leon doesn't pick a fight with somebody, he, he's got a big shot to, you know, to close and get a piece. That's interesting. That could be the one. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if he somehow won the race? I mean, I don't know. I don't know where you. I can't remember if we talked about where you stood with him after the Derby, but I was very much in the not going to win another uh, stake at least camp. And then you know felt so smug and superior after the Belmont, and then of course now two triple digit buyer speed figures later, and a should have won the Lucas Classic later. I. I you know, begrudgingly saying, okay, well, I was definitely wrong about this horse, but <laughs> that would really be, that would really be something if he could get the job done. Yeah. And he, he surprised me too, honestly, Pete coming out of, coming out of the Derby. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no really d- disputing those, those last two races. I mean, I, I haven't, I don't have it on paper yet, but it just, like rolling that around in my head, trying to picture PPs, you know, I'm guessing that that's going to, what that's going to look like on his PPs that are, that are printed for the classic, the good chance he's kind of paired up uh, a couple of good numbers there. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a situation. That's a, that's a dangerous situation when you get a three-year-old, that's improving that pairs them up and, and then comes to his target race that, um, that, you know, those horses can jump forward dramatically. So I, you know, I'm kind of like you, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to dive fully into that camp, but he's definitely a horse you have to take a long, hard look at. 
it's interesting. Now, the Travers figure, that was a strong uh, race on the figure scale. Uh, what, what they, they ended up giving Epicenter like a 112 or something because Rich Strike was beaten five and a half there. They gave him a 105. Every single horse, though, to come out of that race has run at least a few points lower. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I do think that 105 is high. Yeah. Uh, and, probably... and I feel the same way. Sorry to interrupt. I, no, I, feel, go ahead. I feel the same way. Um, but even if, uh, like, like I think I, I had an ability time uh, uh, coming out of the Travers of a 101 or something for him, and uh, uh, because I was shading that that number a little bit too. Uh, but if you know, and the Lucas, uh, I don't even know what they gave that. They got a 101. They gave both of them got a 101. So there you go. Uh, it it you know it, I'm not saying he paired up 104s or fives, but even if he paired up 101s, that doesn't make him beat Flightline. But that, you know, that puts him in a situation where, you know, he could always not show up. But it puts him in a situation where if if you take the name Rich Strike off there and, and you take his first few races out and you just look at a, at a three-year-old that has that profile of pairing up those 101s, that's, you know, those are dangerous horses. Mike, we'll leave it there. We're going to have you back later in the week for the Keeneland Show, and we'll be back with Richard Migliori right after this. Today's show also brought to you by our friends at Adelphi Racing Club. I don't just read these ads for Adelphi Racing Club. I'm also a member and a happy member at that, an unparalleled level of communication from Matt Kater and the team. You just get to learn so much about racing, keeping up to date on what's going on with your horses. And these folks, they know how to have a good time at the track. Had a great time with them at Saratoga this summer and had a great time at Long Shots over at Aqueduct last Thursday as well. Even got to see the team in a winner's circle photo, which is always a lot of fun. The Adelphi Racing Club is a true partnership. If you're interested in joining a group of like-minded individuals and having a truly interactive ownership experience, this is the right fit for you. Lots of different options come up along the way in terms of Adelphi partnerships, yearlings, two-year-olds in training, private purchase and claiming options. Very active at the recent Phasic Tipton Saratoga yearling sale. Limited shares available in some of those horses. Join the club. Many ways to get in touch. AdelphiRacing.com. Holler at Matt. Matt at AdelphiRacing.com. Or connect on social media on Insta, Adelphi underscore racing, or Twitter at Adelphi Club. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome in a returning guest. I haven't had him on in a while. In fact, I think I've had his son on multiple times since the last time he was on. I don't know what I'm do- doing there. Not that his son isn't a great guest, but I always look forward to my time chatting with Richard Migliori. Rich, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Pete. How are you? Things are good. One of the things that's fun about having a horse racing podcast is I can look to smart people to help explain the world to me <laughs> and in a in a race on saturday at churchill downs i saw one of the strangest things that, that i've i think i've ever seen in a race where it appeared that as rich strike was going to win the race um it did look to me in real time and maybe that's why i was a little biased because my first thought watching it was oh my gosh i think his saddle slipped and what the heck happened i've never seen this happen before i was doing TV at the time, so multitasking. And, you know, only later did I see this controversy or what 
may or may not have happened with uh, Sonny Leon's ride aboard Rich Strike in this race eventually won by Hot Rod Charlie. And you seem to have a strong opinion about it. I know sometimes when we have strong opinions, Twitter is an insufficient medium. So I reached out to you and you were kind enough to come on the show today. Tell me what you saw in the stretch run at that race at Churchill Downs on Saturday. Well, I, I saw two very game racehorses, Hot Rod Charlie along the inside and Rich Strike. Uh, running down to the wire. It looked like Rich Strike had the most forward momentum and looked like he was on his way to victory. And then inexplicably, uh, Sonny Leone, the rider of Rich Strike, uh, seemed to make a decision. Now, maybe he felt like uh, Hot Rod Charlie was going to re-rally or fight back. But to go down to Hot Rod Charlie, and basically he uh, hit his horse with the right-handed, the left-handed crop, excuse me, and then you could see him change his hold, his left rein, and basically guide his horse down closer to Hot Rod Charlie, which is mistake number one because Hot Rod Charlie likes a fight. He's a horse that gets emboldened when a horse looks him in the eye. And those horses are you're better off staying away from. So tactically, it was already an unsound move. Um, but then he compounded it by leaning as far as he possibly could off to the left of his horse to put his elbow and his knee, to some extent, into Tyler Gaffione, the rider of Hot Rod Charlie, uh, in an attempt to thwart his forward, forward progress. This is what I see. This is my opinion. Um, you know, I, however the stewards deal with it, they deal with it. But this is my 30,000 races that I rode, <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of thousands of races I've watched. Um, that's what it appeared to me. Um, I, I feel like... If the saddle had slipped, if you watch the head on him and they continue past the wire, if a rider's saddle had truly slipped to the left, which I did not see, I did not see a saddle slip whatsoever, he wouldn't have had the ability to stand up after the wire as high up in the saddle as he did, change his riding crop from his left hand to his right hand and in two strides basically not having both hands on the rein. And that saddle wouldn't have continued to slide and probably roll all the way. So I, I really feel like that wasn't the case. I just did not see a saddle slip. And particularly to me, that was very compelling evidence that it hadn't. Um, how did the saddle right itself when he his weight was hanging all the way to the left? Now, if it did slip, which again, I I just don't see it. I, 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 I've watched every angle. I've watched the race multiple times. I've seen still photos. I don't see a saddle slip. I see a rider shifting his weight all the way one direction. But if it did slip, just play devil's advocate, it slipped because a rider was hanging off one side of his horse to get to a rival jockey and horse. And it's to me, that's a clear breach of the rules. I'm wondering what the game plan was because you would have to think had that been successful – in and and the race had been won by Rich Strike, it would have come down anyway. So I'm 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 a little confused as to what the what the tactics would have been in in the in the scenario that you're describing and making an excellent case for with just having ridden the thirty thousand races. <laughs> well, honestly, I think that athletes and people in general in different situations, different circumstances, will have a tendency to do something out of character because of the, the, you know, heightened pressure of the moment. Um, 
it's it's obviously not a moment of clarity. Uh, you're you're lost within. You know, listen, I did things in my career that I went, oh, what did I just do? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I think though the difference would have been I would have come back and said, oh my God, what did I just do? Um, Sonny Leone's a very good rider. His ride in the Derby was tremendous, but we've seen more and more prevalent this idea that race riding is going after a rival, shifting a horse's weight from, you know, uh, the, the four path, uh, all the way to the rail in a matter of strides, which to me slows the horse forward progress down and invites injury. You got a thousand pound animal shifting all kinds of weight on, you know, legs that are very thin. I, so what frustrates me the most, Pete, is that what the conversation should have been after that race, whether Rich Strike won or lost, whether Hot Rod Charlie came back or not, was what a great horse race it was by two very brave, gallant, tenacious racehorses. And Rich Strike, three-year-old taken on older for the first time, took on maybe you know the Ernie Shavers of the, the <laughs> thoroughbred older horse division right not he, he he's not muhammad ali he's not the greatest but guess what he shows up every time and he's got a knockout punch right yeah um and and how well he did against him whether he beat him or he didn't that he stood toe-to-toe with ernie shavers and it's tough for a three-year-old to take on older horses throughout the history of our our game you can go back into the 70s you know seattle slew beat a firm Seattle Sioux was four, Firm was three. The next year, Firm beat Spectacular Bid when he was four and Spectacular Bid was three. So historically, good your best four-year-olds beat your best three-year-olds. Well, he gave Hot Rod Charlie all you could handle and, in my opinion, was the best horse. I think he would have beaten him. I was going to ask you that. If he just keeps a straight course, doesn't he win? I mean, my eyes told me that's why I thought there was an equipment trouble or something because it looked as plain as day as if if – he was just going to go right by and whatever happened there is the reason he didn't. I was going to ask you if that was an oversimplification. It sounds like you agree. No, I, I agree. You have forward momentum. When you change a horse's direction that late in the game, when they have that momentum, you're basically thwarting that momentum. Uh, and again, I don't, I not in Sonny Leone's mind, it's nothing personal. I think Sonny Leone needs to reflect on, you know, if you want to be, the best rider you can be and get to the next level, you know, question those kind of tactics and maybe put it away. So I was very critical all summer of Ira Ortiz uh, Jr. up in Saratoga, leading rider. And, and when he won the Whitney, I, I nobody could have been more vocal of the criticism um, of him shifting lanes, looking to the right, going to the right, then seeing uh, Happy Saver, who, by the way, was a part of this scenario as well. He kind of got a little bit jammed up. Uh, in between Hot Rod Charlie and uh, Rich Strike. And, you know, I, I, that part, people say, well, he bothered Happy Saver. I actually think that was race riding. And he was Happy Saver. He put him in a compromising position. That's a jockey's job, to put his rivals in a compromising position within the boundaries of the rules. To me, that was within the boundaries of the rules. What happened later in the stretch wasn't. Um, but I don't know when it became fashionable to start throwing elbows. I mean, we're seeing it all over the world now. <laughs> Quite literally. 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 I mean, this is nonsense. And we're taking away from what this sport is about. It is horse racing, not jockey racing. I applaud good rides. You know, your best rides are when you almost don't even notice the rider. 
because he's done everything in a professional, you know, depth way that, that people can, can appreciate that the horse is the horse's performance. We're not focusing on the right things. And, um, you know, I, I'm watching I read ride right now. I think I has been riding aqueduct incredible. I haven't seen him doing those, that nonsense, those gyrations he was doing in Saratoga. So it shows that you can be effect, effective without having to go to those extremes. Allow the horse's ability to shine. Allow your sense of pace, your judgment of what's underneath you, your, your sense of being able to get position. That's what good race riders do. There's an art to race riding, and it's subtle, and, it, and, and it's, it's making these little moves that put people in positions that compromise their best chance. But again, not going, getting, riding into that gray area, not going over. You know, yeah, I hear people say silly things sometimes. They go, well, if Angel Cordero was in there, he would have put him through the rail. <laughs> Angel Cordero never put anybody through the rail. Okay. That, 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 that's ridiculous. That's a, you know, uh, first of all, illegal, dangerous. He, he race rode. He put guys in a position that made it difficult for them. Eddie Maple was great at doing that. He didn't have a reputation for it because he did it so quietly, so subtle that a casual observer might not, not notice it. Me, I remember being an apprentice and he had me so tight on the rail. I couldn't go forward. I couldn't go backwards, <laughs> but he, but he didn't put me into the fence. He didn't put me in a dangerous situation. And I remember thinking, man, how did he do that? I got to figure out how to do that. That, it, that's, you know, again, the art of it. It's, it's not this herky-jerky, big grandstand moves. It's quiet, subtle moves that put your horse in a better position than your rivals. You're playing chess when other people are playing checkers. We got to talk about potential solutions because obviously I was going to bring up Irad if you if you hadn't. I'm glad you you saved me that trouble. Didn't want to feel like I was piling on or, or burying the guy for some of the stuff we saw at Saratoga. But you know clearly he thinks it's giving him an advantage. And but here's the the next point: nobody's doing anything about it. And we've certainly seen instances, none more egregious for me than 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 last that very dangerous incident last fall that he basically got a. a holiday vacation for as opposed to any more serious punishment how is the stewarding supposed to work to to clean this up and make it so that we don't have these dangerous situations and as you point out put the focus back where it should be in the action of the athletes the equine athletes on the track well i i really think that there has to be ironclad officiating there has to be heavy-handed officiating and say you know basically there has to be a message sent. Hey, we're not having this anymore. This ends now. Your elbow is six inches away from the horse's neck. You're leaning and you're trying to intimidate somebody. We're not going to have it. Your knee comes out of the saddle to the point where it's pressing on another horse. We're not going to have it. Um, it's, it's amazing to me, you know, when you know where the line is and, and, we're talking about some of the best riders in the world. They can ride right to that line. They can even maybe edge into that line without going over it. Right now, it doesn't feel like anybody quite knows where the line is. And that creates a more dangerous situation on the racetrack because I don't know how far this guy's going to go. I, well, if it happens to me, how far can I go? I'm going to press it even further. Human nature. You know, we, we've talked about gate infractions, you know, horses breaking out of the gate, going left or right and, 
I don't know when it became okay to just allow a horse to go left or right that, you know, years ago you were accountable for what happened leaving the starting gate. And I'm here to tell you as a former rider, a lot more can be done to correct the horse out of the gate. If you're actually making an effort. Now you're going to get one out of, you know, so many, probably one out of 30 that if a horse just decides he's going hard left, an American Rockette comes up to my mind in the spin away when she just you know made a complete right-hand turn leaving the gate. Um, but you also visibly can see when a rider is, is making an effort. Now, I know that the starts can be cleaner. I, it's no doubt in my mind. But if I've been shut off leaving the gate four or five times in a row because a guy doesn't correct his horse, What's my motivation? And there's no penalty. There's no disqualification. There's no suspension. What's my motivation to straighten my horse up when he breaks left or right? When, oh, it's, you know, it's the start. Anything goes. So it starts with things like this. There has to be precedent set. There has to be clear cut guidelines to say that's unacceptable. And if you don't correct the horse or you don't ride the right way or the way the standards that we're setting, there's going to be serious ramifications. And if a guy can't get it, then he's going to sit on the sidelines for a long time thinking about it until he either figures it out or he goes finds another career. You can't have people wagering on these races with confidence if the officiating isn't strict, fair, and most of all consistent. And I just see from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from day to day, we're not seeing a level of consistency that needs to be uh, brought to bear. Uh, I, you know, there has to be oversight. I, I, you know, I was really good friends with Arthur Marcanti Sr. Um, we were neighbors uh, on Long Island. And we would talk horse racing and boxing, and I would watch fight films with him, and he would watch racing films with me, and we would educate each other about our respective you know, games. And one day he asked me, you know, how many times a year do they convene with the stewards to go over their decisions, their rulings? And I said, I, I, you know, I'm really not sure. I, I, I'm, as far as I know, not that often. He told me that the State Boxing Commission would get together four times a year, every three months, and go through every fight and how judges scored them and how refs ref them. And if there were glaring disparities, they would be called in and say, explain this. Why? Why is this? And boxing from as far as i know brings in a minuscule amount of revenue to the state of new york compared to racing so i I really think there needs to be oversight on every level and explain to me why this horse came down this day for this infraction drifting out four paths and this horse stayed up this day drifting out four paths and making contact that's where the frustration comes between the, the participants within the game, jockeys, trainers, owners, and certainly the betting public. Um, we, we need to strive for the cleanest racing possible. And that doesn't mean doing away with race riding. Again, the art of race riding is subtle, but it also means that, Hey, enough of this nonsense where we're using horses as battering rams or allowing horses to, to, you know, drift, you know, five paths. You're the pilot. I don't want to hear this nonsense. Well, the horse did this. Then what are you up there for? <laughs> and it sounds like the real change probably has to happen. At, we're not expecting this to the, the stewards to just wake up one day and say, we're going to do this differently. It has to come from a, from a higher level. And the way racing 
currently constituted, now I guess Heisa complicates this further, but we'd have to look to the, the New York State Gaming Commission to, to expect some accountability of the stewards if we want to see this change in New York? Well, I, mean, I think New York and, and all around the country, I mean, I, I watch races from everywhere and I see things that I just shake my head consistently and not, not just New York. So I don't mean to single anybody out, but um, obviously this is the, the circuit that I'm, you know, a, a part of and I, I'm more, uh, you know, aware of everything here. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I just think, you know, like look what the NHL wound up doing. They, you know, they, they go up to, uh, Toronto to, to, you know, see if this was a, a goal or a non-goal or the, the head of player safety goes, okay, this was uh, an illegal check from behind. And obviously there was intent there and it, it, it's adjudicated up there. Um, and there's less personalities involved. You know, racetrack is, is a family, a mm-hmm. dysfunctional family most of the time, but um, you know, there's relationships. And I, can anybody say with any certainty that that doesn't come into play in, in the decision-making or even the adjudicating of it? I, I mean, surely think it does. Yeah. I mean, just human nature. You have to think it does. And um, I think it takes it away. There's, there's some guys up in a room going, Oh, and, and experts guys that are very, very knowledgeable about the game that they're, you know, presiding over. Well, okay. This wasn't, this, you know, it, it's not, oh, that guy's my buddy. Oh, Wayne Gretzky and I had dinner. It's, no, no, no. This was, I, you know, I mean, I just, I think there's got to be a whole nother level of officiating about this. And and maybe it's unreasonable to think that that can happen um, just jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Maybe there has to be a, a larger governing body or oversight about it. I just get frustrated, and, and I, I, I was talking about this this morning. Um, you know, being a former rider and having gone through some severe injuries, I, I, a lot of times when a guy gets hurt on our circuit, I go to the hospital. You know, it, it's a scary time for the rider, the family. There's uncertainty, you know, as far as the extent of the injury, how they're going to help the rider, if surgeries, this, that, and the family's overwhelmed. So I haven't been through it. I go to the hospital and I was talking about it this morning that I was with Rajiv Maraj when he got dropped in the jockey club bowl cup several years ago by junior Alvarado. And I was very, very critical of, of junior Alvarado. I, I felt like, you know, his, he caused it. And, uh, and I went to him and gave my criticism. Anything I say publicly, whether it's on Twitter on your show, on the radio, on, you know, America's Day at the Races, I'll go to the same person and say it to their face. I, it's sure. what I believe. I made, and now, listen, I, am I saying I'm always right? No. But I genuinely believe what I'm saying, and I'll stand by it, and I'm not going to shy away from, hey, you want to have a discussion about it? We can have a discussion about it. And I really felt at the time, because I was there with Rajiv Mirage when they had to set his forearm, and I held his other hand, and went through, you know, that moment when he's screaming because they're setting his bones and, he's, you know, the pain he's in. I felt strongly at that time, Junior Alvarado shouldn't be allowed to ride until this guy can ride again. And now I know this probably, the, 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 legally it probably can never be done. But you do something that causes an accident and costs a rider six months, well, you can't ride for six months. 
you cost him his career, well, you just cost yourself your career. I, I, there has to be a higher standard set and more accountability and this nonsense where, oh, well, my horse overreacted. Enough. It's, it's enough. I, all I hear is excuses, and, and, and I, frankly, am tired of the excuses. I agree with everything you're saying. I'll make one devil's advocate point, and then I'll let you get out of here because I've kept you longer already than I said I was going to. I think maybe in this Christophe Soumillon incident that we saw the other day, that he's actually getting off too easy because the other rider wasn't more injured. And I do think there's something to be said for the idea that the punishment should fit the crime, not just the punishment should fit the damage that was inflicted. Do you have any sympathy for that point of view? And what did you think about the, the Soumillon penalty of the, giving him the two months um, from that incident? Well, I, I agree with you. It was far too light. That that was a minimum of six months as far as I'm concerned. A minimum. Um, and the way their rules are written, you could feel the frustration with their you know, the French Gallup, uh, the uh, officials there, that he was able to ride through Arc Weekend. And basically that's, you know, I won't say the end of their season, but certainly – the, the the end of the the highlights of their season, right? So now he's going to serve a suspension through a, a less meaningful time of the year. Yeah, uh, far too light. Uh, two months. You, you you intentionally pushed another rider off his horse, in essence, with your elbow. You know, there's the elbow thing again. Um, I, agreed. I mean, you, there has to be uh, harsher p- penalties. Um, and, you know, this is coming from a former rider. I I, I just don't. I feel like it's gotten out of hand and the focus needs to be back on the horses, the connections that get these horses ready. No one's talking about the job Eric Reed did to have a rich strike as good as he was on the day. That that's all lost in this, all of that, the, the, the effort from hot rod Charlie to fight back and Doug O'Neill and his team. It's all lost on this because a rider does something that brings all the attention to him. And I'll leave you with this. I've never understood a riders in the four or five path going down the back stretch, heading to the far turn. It's at a time in a race when everybody's in full control of their horses. You've got your horse in your hands. Now you go, well, I, I don't want to be caught wide. So you'll squeeze guys out of there going to the turn. I did it as a rider. You learn, you, you adjust, you evolve. So you go from the five path and get yourself down to the two or three path, but you t- made two or three horses kind of steady out of there before the turn. They give you three day suspension. That's a premeditated foul when you're in control of a situation because you're the one outside, you have the most room to work with, but you don't want to be wide. Now you're in the stretch head and head for the lead with another horse. It's 16th pole. You switch your crop to the left hand. You give your horse a tap. He comes out and brushes a horse and you win by a nose and they disqualify you, and they give you three days. So you're giving me three days for a competitive foul in the heat of the moment when horses are tired and you have less control of them. Not that saying that you shouldn't have control, but less control than you were on the backstretch. And you're giving me three days for making a conscious decision to squeeze somebody out of a spot. You're giving me the same penalty for jaywalking as you are for assault and battery. <laughs> It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? No, that you know, crime punishment and you no know, and, and understanding that 
there are situations where a guy can't, a horse just does something to the point where nobody was going to be able to stop him from doing it. I get that, but you got to be able to discern that. And you got to be able to discern when a rider made a real effort or when it was the rider actually doing it instead of the horse. Um, and, and again, my opinion about Saturday, I did not see anything but a rider intentionally trying to thwart a rival's progress, forward progress to come back. Now, someone brought up to me, maybe it had to do with the fact that, and I don't know this, this is just something somebody said to me that I thought was a bit interesting. Um, the new Thesa uh, rules that he had already used his six strikes with the crop and felt like his horse got there and started floating. He was like, oh my gosh, my horse is losing focus. I got to get him down to this horse. And he overreacted and, I, maybe that had something to do with it. I haven't gone back and, and counted how many times he had used the crop up to that point. But I see, I also think that's not uh, a good thing. I think it's a dangerous precedent. Riders have to be able to react instinctually. And if it's in their head, oh, wait, I've got six times I can use this. You're already inhibiting that instinctual process, that, that ability to make those snap decisions. And I, I just think if you take a rider's instincts away, you're creating a more dangerous situation. If a rider misuses the crop, and it could be using it one time as misuse because the situation didn't call for it. So right now it's okay if a rider wins by 10 lengths on a horse and he uses the crop six times, didn't need to use it once. Or a horse is tired and he backs up to the field and the rider uses it six times. Well, he's in, within the boundaries of the rules, but he shouldn't have used it because he was on a tired horse. You need people in place to say, look at that and go, wait a second. All right. This horse was kind of pulling up and his ears were going back and forth and he was losing focus. And this rider used it 10 times. That's, you know, it was warranted in that situation. And also people are wagering on this. So you want to take away that competitive part of this, that, that people feel like they walk away, that they didn't get a fair shake, doesn't help our game because the public is going to drift towards other things where they feel like they're getting a, a more fair uh, shake. And inhibiting a rider's instincts and ability to react to situations creates a more dangerous environment, my opinion. It, it makes sense. I mean, you make a great point, and especially about the gambling in a time when the gambling environment has never been more competitive. We're going to leave it here, but we've got to pick up this conversation soon. What a pleasure having you on and uh, illuminating us, giving us this great perspective um, from your years in the saddle, from your years as an analyst. Richard Migliori, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Pete. Have a great day. If, like me, you love following racing all around the world, I've got something you need to check out right now. The fall racing calendar in Britain is reaching a crescendo with a flurry of Group 1 races, while the world's most prestigious turf yearling sales are underway at Tattersall's this week. It's the perfect time of year to be exploring and getting involved in British racing. But where to start? Well, over this period, Great British Racing International is bringing you a showcase of the best of British racing and bloodstock as told by leading figures from across the industry. On www.investinthebest.co.uk and across GBRI's social media platforms, you're going to find stories of world-leading horses trained in Britain, of the country's foremost breeding operations, of the global footprint of horses sold at Britain sales, of the welfare standards that are upheld for the horse population in Britain, and much more. You can find out more and contact GBRI, Great British Racing International, who can assist you in taking your first steps into buying, owning, racing, and breeding in Britain. 
To find out more and follow the stories, go to www.investinthebest.co.uk. Brought to you by Great British Racing International. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. We'd like to thank Mike Maloney and Richard Migliori one more time. We'll thank our founding partners, 10 Strike Racing and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. By the way, that TRF auction we talked about, if you're looking for a place to stay for Breeders' Cup, well, the reserve was not met on the first edition of it. So it's been extended. Now it's going to benefit not just the TRF, but also the Belmont Backstretch Child Care Association. The auction is opening up again soon. Go to our pretty link to find out more. It's going to be up very soon in the moneypodcast.com slash TRFBC. If you have any questions, reach out to me directly. But this is a great room at a great hotel for one of the best weekends of racing of the year. Speaking of people to thank, most of all, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. If you like our act, if you want to support us, a couple of easy things you can do. Sign up for our free newsletter in themoneypodcast.com slash email. You can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or over on our YouTube channel. That helps us out tremendously. And if you want extra content, and boy, we're going to have a ton of extra content coming up soon. In the Money Plus is the thing you want to get. In themoneypodcast.com slash plus. Sign up soon. You get, even just for one month, you'll get all our special Santa Anita coverage, Justin Christine doing a fantastic job over there. We're going to have a special notebook for Plus People uh, by Eric DeCoster for Keeneland. That's going to be can't-miss stuff as well. Some great uh, extra tipping pieces from JK. Uh, the list goes on and on. A little digest of all the picks from the shows, etc., etc. In the moneypodcast.com slash plus. No better time to sign up than now. You'll be hearing a bit more about that as well. Let's do a few more thank yous just on our team. You hear me all the time talk about Drew Cotney and Jonathan Kinchin. You know all about them. But how about uh, Tyler Wisman and the job he does on the In the Money Plus side and a lot of the back end stuff? Eric DeCoster helping out here, there, and everywhere, who I just mentioned before. And uh, James Millar, what a great job he's been doing helping us out on the sales side, too. And I'll throw in Kevin Murphy, too, who's been helping us out with social. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May you win all your photos!